begin. It happened. Huzzah. Huzzah. Now becomes the part where someone has to tell us, someone has to acknowledge our existence. And by doing so, uh, some kind of quantum thing makes us you bring appear. us. You, yeah, you uh, you uh, you make us coherent. Mm-hmm. Collapse. You collapse the our, our wave function, our entangled wave function, and no matter what, you're going to end up with the bald guy. <laughs> no matter whichever way. I'm not saying, I'm not saying which is which. Whichever way the particles, uh, yeah, collapse, you end up with a uh, a bald guy with a with some facial hair, some scruff, some scruff. Hey everyone. Welcome to uh, live QA with my good friend, uh, sometimes traveling companion. That's a lie. Dr. Paul Sutter. So, it's me. So do we, shall we just drop the mat from here on out? It's just Dr. Paul Sutter? Yeah. Dr. Yeah, Sutter? Cool. Dr. Paul? That's what Skylius calls you, Dr. Paul. So Sky, yeah, Sky calls me Dr. Paul. Some people just call me the spaceman. Some people call me Dr. Sutter. Some people call me Paul. Uh, You can call me. uh, Yeah. You know, as soon as I, that was one of the first comments I got because I never watched 30 Rock. Yep. So I named the podcast Ask a Spaceman in one of the first things my colleagues said to me was, oh, Ask a Spachemin. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's an obscure reference to a TV show. And and I have to live with it forever now. Well, at least it's like you're not na- given the same name as a major character in a beloved uh, sitcom from the 80s and 90s. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the hilarious thing is I was talking with uh, – uh, who was it? Oh, the people who clean our house. And she was saying – I was saying, we're making a joke about my name. And she was like, I don't get it. What's your, you know, what's the joke about your name? And I'm like, have you not seen the show Frasier? No. So we're actually moving to a point now where people have no reference for. Unless they reboot it. For my name. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I guess now that Roseanne's off the air, they may have uh, room to do it. Yeah. And Kelsey Grammer, as I, far as I, I know, sent Kelsey Grammer an e- uh, tweet and I said, can I have my name back now, please? Because I had it first. Uh, and what did he say? He saw he he hit, Yeah, you just let me eat static. Now you're now you're blocked by Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So if you have no idea what it is that you've stumbled into, this is my Monday open Q&A where I sometimes just do this solo, sometimes bring a special guest, and we just answer your questions of different specialties. So last week we had um, Eric Berger from Ars Technica, and he's your spaceflight guy. This week uh, we got uh, Dr. Sutter, and he's going to be your cosmology physics guy. And if you don't have questions for Paul, I got a couple of doozies, which... You know, I can, bet you do. You always save the hardest ones for me. Well, have you, you know, what? we're just going to, you know what, let's just go right into it. Maybe you haven't been on top of this, but have you heard that they've de- maybe detected sterile neutrinos? No, they haven't. Sh- shall I hit you with the link? Do you, do you need? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll, I'll search it. I'm sure I'll 
just a, a major physics experiment just detected a particle that shouldn't exist. Hey, while you're doing Ice that, cream. while you're getting yourself up to yeah. speed, uh, I'm to wish uh, Nancy happy birthday. Happy birthday, Nancy. Oh, happy birthday. So he's just like, he does this. He's just digesting, just taking this new piece of information into everything else he knows. And, uh, and let's do it. Okay, so Sabine Hostenfelder is excited by it. Well, that's good enough for us, isn't it? Yeah. I'm reading through it. Okay. <laughs> While we do this, um, I'm gonna t Steve Sharmer asks, when do you predict there will be a coronagraph advanced enough to get an image of an extrasolar planet? So there's actually sort of two ways this is gonna go. One, okay, so for people who don't know what a coronagraph is, that is essentially a, a sunshade, a way that you block the light from the star so that the fainter planets nearby are gonna be able to show up. And, uh, you know, there are various coronagraphs that have been in the works. And one was just implemented, or was in the process of being implemented for the European Southern Observatory, one of their ground-based telescopes. And it's going to be able to show planets next to stars. The next, sort of major version of this is going to be what's called the star shade. And that's going to be one of these, you know, it looks like a great big flower petal in space. And it hovers about 10,000 kilometers away from the telescope and, and sort of blocks the light from the star and allows the various planets that are surrounding it to be uh, visible. And so in the next decadal survey, this is the uh, sort of the next version of, and I'm actually working on a video about this right now, but every 10 years, NASA uh, is sort of asks the scientific community for their priorities. They come back with all their priorities. And one of the priorities that people are putting into some of the missions and for the next decadal survey is that the space telescopes be starshade ready. So which means that, you know, the starshade may or may not get launched, but uh, the telescopes have to be able to deal with being equipped with this starshade and be able to observe properly and be able to uh, be able to to use the starshade as an instrument to help them identify planets. So uh, W first is one of them that's going to be that is going to be have to be starshade ready, and you're probably going to see James Webb doing the same thing. Uh, and then <clears throat> there's these four telescopes that that NASA is sort of juggling right now. Louvoir is one that we've talked about, and there's three others. And I'm working on a video right now about that. So so stay tuned, and I will talk about the, the starshade readiness and, and all of this. So anytime there's, and I was not paying attention to a single word you said. I was just waiting for uh, a pause. Are a you starshade ready? Oh, always, yeah. yeah. All you right. know, mounted on me, and uh, I'll go hunt some excellent. Hunt some planets. You can see Earth. Uh, so the, we always have to be careful when there are big announcements, especially big announcements, big announcements based on a single result that has incredibly far reaching implications. And this is such a case where we have one, uh, one instrument, one experiment and I'm assuming, and this is a, a large collaboration, they've been running these kinds of experiments for a very long time, that they did a good job, that they that they understood their, they understand their instrument, they understand the, the analysis, 
the the statistics and everything and they understand the physics and they put out a good faith paper and in this particular paper there is uh they claim uh up to six sigma uh detection of a new kind of neutrino, a hypothesis kind of neutrino called a sterile neutrino that would not ever, 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 ever interact with normal matter. Uh, but you can catch it uh, kind of in the act and I can get into the physics if you want. Uh, but I want to talk about the thing I always gravitate towards is the significance, that stated number of, oh, this is a six sigma mm -hmm. detection. This is Nobel Prize worthy. It, yeah, it's six sigma if you've properly understood your uncertainties. If you properly and totally 100% understand all of your statistical errors, your systematic errors, how the instrument, how your apparatus actually responds in the real world versus some idealized scenario. If all that's true, then yes, yeah, Six Sigma is a solid detection. But more likely than not, those you did not estimate your uncertainties correctly. And, and I that's made hit four yeah. sigmas, what I've read. I, I, I saw four sigma. I saw another number, another number that said six sigma combined, where if you take one detection that has a four sigma away and another two, you can add it together. That's not quite accurate, but. Is that other words? You add your yeah. sigmas together? If you have a two you, sigma you result can, and a four if, sigma, if, then you've got a six sigma? Measure, if, if you have two differences and they each carry their error bars, you can measure the number of error bars away from the each other those those measurements are but i'll leave that to the side um if and, and that's where all the nuance and subtlety in modern high energy physics and cosmology is is in studying the air bars that's where the real meat of the discussion is and where all the hard work and sweat goes is in you know, are the air bars this big? Are they this big? Are they lopsided? Are they really representing the underlying data? Blah, 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 blah. All these super complicated questions. Yeah. And when there's a result that's surprising with a high statistical significance, it could be that watershed moment where we open up our eyes and we realize that new physics is upon us or the experimenters didn't understand their instrument as well as they thought they did. Especially in this case, when a lot of other experiments uh, disfavor the existence of sterile neutrinos. We up, this idea has been tossed around for decades. At, up until this point, we've had no good reason to suspect that sterile neutrinos exist. Now this experiment comes into the mix. Now we got we gotta think a little bit like, okay, uh, are sterile neutrinos maybe a thing? Then we have to explain these other observations that that counted against it, uh, or did they do something wrong? But I mean, just up until last week, we had been talking about the results that have come back from the Large Hadron Collider, and that it has been perfectly, boringly filling in mm -hmm. all the pieces of the standard model. Nothing mm -hmm. new, nothing surprising. What? are the implications if sterile neutrinos are in fact discovered like are we talking nobel prize if this is if this is a true thing yes yeah 
Sterile neutrinos, maybe a Nobel Prize, either just for the discoverers, maybe the theorists that invented it, maybe both. Uh, that sometimes happens. Neutrinos themselves, a lot of the properties of neutrinos already exist outside of the standard model of particle physics, like the fact that neutrinos have mass. That is not a part of our standard, uh, of, the, of the standard model. And if you add in a new flavor, a new kind of neutrino, this disturbs a lot of the fundamental symmetries in the mathematics in nature that the standard model is built on. Like, like you'd imagine this, you know, this, the standard model is this, uh, you know, perfectly symmetrical castle that stretches far into the sky. And then this is just like a, a, a piece of dynamite in one corner that forces us to really reconsider our approaches to the standard model, our views of the, the implications of the standard model of, we know the standard model is incomplete. We don't really know how to extend it. This could be a window into extending it, revamping it, finding some a more fundamental uh, law of nature. But it's like the first particle potentially that's found that is beyond the standard model. And by doing so, makes like requires new laws of physics and understanding to go yeah. to go further and as you said yeah, exactly this is, this so, is nobel prize i would say this is nobel prize if it's right if yeah i'm i'm not really gonna <laughs> feel so strongly that is right like it's just because it's just one paper yep. and even though these researchers are great and i don't even know them but i'm sure i respect them and and they did a good job at everything. It's just one result. We're gonna need some more some more thinking about this. Right. Yeah. So I just tend not to get too excited. Yeah. No. I, about these I absolutely. But I, I guess you know, with the the caliber of the people who are excited about the result by the you know the way they put the paper out into the you know into the community. Uh, it's, it, you know, they're doing all the right things and it would yes. be a pretty amazing discovery to actually have this. So, yes, they're doing science, right? Like they're, they're publishing the results and their methods are opening up and say, okay, now what everyone? Yeah. Yeah. Tear, tear it apart, please. Uh, so go ahead. If you've got any questions for Paul, people are asking sort of your credentials. Can you give just a quick explanation of, of, of where you got your science from? Oh, I make it up all right. the time. Uh, but what, I, what I've what i done is I've read a bunch of Wikipedia articles, so I know all the jargon, but right. I really have no idea what I'm saying. Right, yeah. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, no clue. I uh, got my bachelor's in physics in uh, from California Polytechnic State University back in the day in 2005. Went on for a PhD in physics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign as a Department of Energy Computational Science Graduate Fellow, and finished that in 2011, went on to the Paris Institute of Astrophysics or Institut d'Astrophysique de Paris, and spent three years there as a postdoc, then two years in Italy at the Astronomical Observatory in Trieste, and now I am at The Ohio State University with the split position where I am half-time at the university and half-time the chief scientist at COSI Science Center, which is the, the Science Center there you go. in Columbus. And That's specifically, me. you did a lot of your work looking at cosmic voids. Yeah, especially in that postdoc work. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, so my graduate work, I was doing computer simulations, big heavy duty, giant simulation stuff of, you know, 100,000 processor kind of runs, looking at magnetized outflows and clusters of galaxies, their relationship to quasars and black holes and all that. I pivoted after grad school because I was really tired of that stuff. Uh, worked on large scale structure, cosmology, Big Bang. I'm a member, I was a member of the Planck collaboration doing data analysis of the cosmic microwave background, uh, working on cosmic voids, the large empty places in the universe, doing data analysis problems for its finding the first stars for radio interferometry. And I continued some of those research lines today. In fact, this week I have a collaborator visiting me. Uh, all about voids. Excellent. That's uh, an interesting question. So Steve Sharmer asks, will the Chinese share the information they get from the radio telescope on the far side of the moon? Have you been following this mission at all? <sighs> A little bit. So it's not, is it, it's not like going to land on the far side of the moon. It's just going to be in orbit, right? Well, they're sending a rover. So they've, they've put a, um, they've put a spacecraft to the Lagrange point, to the Earth-Moon L2 Lagrange yep. point, and it's going to be acting as a relay for communicating information from from the lander rover that they're going to be putting on the far side of the moon. So the purpose of this is to um, is to act as a relay because we have no mm -hmm. no communicators on the on the far side yeah. of the moon and that's its that's its main purpose will china be contributing the science to it i mean they're actually pretty active on astro ph i see a lot of papers from oh, yeah. chinese scientists they've got the fast telescope which is the largest radio telescope in the world mm -hmm. single radio single radio telescope. that's right and their barometers are bigger but they're yeah. building the largest steerable dish telescope like the you know like a big version of the jaw drill bank and uh you know, and and other people can do research time on their projects. So I can't imagine why they wouldn't be sharing their scientific data with the with yeah, the, like especially if they found something cool. Installation uh, is probably going to be a mix of there's initial funders and initial backers, initial collaborators. They'll get first crack at the instrument. They for it as a reward for doing all the hard work of actually designing it, building it, testing it operating it, working out all the kinks, they get exclusive access to it for a set period of time. Uh, and then it will probably open up to the community for, uh, for competitive proposals, if it's that kind of instrument, or it might just stay inside the collaboration, depending on the, yeah. on the funding structure of it. The, the tough part with stuff that comes out of China is that it's in Chinese. A lot of the, um, the news releases, a lot of the sort of official mm -hmm. documents and stuff that you try to get, it's all it's all in in Chinese. And so we don't learn as much here in the West about about the projects, about their discoveries, about the new missions that are coming yeah. up. There are a few uh, research, a few outlets like I like Spaceflight Now and America Space, ironically, uh, does a good job of, you know, they, they publish a lot of good stuff on on Chinese launches and things like that. But a lot of it's mm -hmm. just sort of you find out after the fact. But with the yeah. with the lander, we're actually, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of information. They've been they've been sort of telegraphing what they're going to be doing and, and then upcoming missions. So, yeah, we, we, we saw that a lot during the cold war of Soviet scientists having very, very limited access to the West and vice versa. And so they, you would, 
Now, decades later, you can see these parallel trains of thought where there were Soviet scientists and Western scientists both coming to the same conclusions right. and they get meet like once every five years or something ridiculous. And they would meet and they say, Oh wow. Turns out we both figured this yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the, so, and it turns out the Soviet scientists didn't get sufficient credit for their work just because it wasn't a part of the Western yeah. uh, journal tradition. And I think we're seeing that with Chinese scientists. So a lot of young Chinese scientists will come to the US for graduate school, for postdocs. Uh, they'll come to Europe too. They'll they'll spend some time here learning from the best, uh, which is great. And then head back uh, to become a professor at a university in China. And then for all intents and purposes, they, they drop off. Uh, they don't publish in English. They don't uh, attend the major European or American conferences. And so sometimes you find out what Chinese scientists are doing and it's super cool. Sometimes they're part of collaborations, but I think we're missing a lot. Um, and Astro YYZ is noting the Chinese are looking for science partners from other UN nations for their as of yet unbuilt new space station. So I don't know if you've seen nice. that as well. They're working on a space station. They're looking for partners to come on board with that because the, um, the Chinese aren't allowed to contribute with the International Space Station. And so they're building their own station and they're mm -hmm. bringing on other partners who maybe haven't been able to get involved on the International Space Station. So staying busy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's, you know, I mean, as we've seen with their their human space exploration efforts, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing how quickly they've gotten. And that's sort of one of the yeah. the advantages you can have from a fairly centralized system is they can just make these kinds of goals and directions and just implement them. And they're not that concerned with having to, you know, convince be safe. Yeah, or convince the populace, or convince the other parts of the government. They just do it. So, which well, I, has I all say, kinds I, of downsides. Like I think, I think it's that, really important to say there's all kinds of downsides with with that. And I think of, I think that's know. a pretty broad brush there. Yeah. Even in centralized governments, even with pure autocratic governments, there's a lot of interests that need to be appeased in order to push your policy through. Uh, just because there's one person at the top doesn't mean politics goes away. Uh, what I think we're seeing is it's not necessarily that the government just decides this and it's just happened, is, is that a space mission or space missions or a space agenda aligns with the priorities of the ruling parties and the people that the ruling parties have to answer to. Yeah. So go ahead, hit us with some questions. Uh, why uh, Dan wants to know why can't the Chinese contribute to ISS? This is like some international treaty from the United States, right? It's like a security requirement while the yeah, russians help build it and supply and they supply astronauts to it and so they're party of part of it and in fact the russians have come on board to help build the deep space gateway so they're going to be a part of it as well mm -hmm. if that will ever happen let me see this is an interesting one <laughs> our jones says like boosters possibly landing near your house yeah that's the kind of thing right mm -hmm. where boosters from crashing down in the you know near your house and it's mm -hmm. you know just one of the sort of prices that people have to pay for their country 
building its uh, ability in space exploration. Yeah. Flip-flops asks, concerning gravitational waves, do all objects which interact with each other create microgravitational waves, or is space-time too tough for it? So does uh, everything yes. moving create gravitational waves? Yes, basically. Just yeah. little ones. Waves upon waves upon waves upon waves. So we are experiencing the, gra the gravitational waves from every single moving object within our light cone? Yes, so there are, uh, yes, with, within our cosmological horizon, there are, if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we just did an episode on cosmological horizons. Uh, there are gravitational waves sloshing over us right now that are left over from the event of inflation 13.77 billion years ago. And, and that's actually one of the the sort of the next missions, the Lisa mission, the Lisa Pathfinder went to test the technology of Lisa. Following that is going to be the actual Lisa mission. And then following mm -hmm. that, we hope is going to be the Big Bang Observer satellite satellite. Yep. And that is going to be able to, we hope, see the gravitational waves from that inflation. What would you what do you yep. think they would look like? What would you think they would tell you? Wibbly wobbly. Wibbly wobbly timey you know, wimey. Wavy Davy. Yeah. Uh, we honestly don't know. We, I mean, we have a really solid idea of what inflation looks like, but we don't know the particulars. And the physics that generates and drives the inflation is still really unknown. So it would imprint itself, the gravitational waves, it, it would have a very, very peculiar spectrum where it's very, very hard to put into words. So I'm going to avoid it. Uh, but it would it would look very distinct, and right. it we've did run models, so we have all the templates. We know of uh, various inflation theories what these uh, what the gravitational wave signature would look like. All right, it wouldn't look like the merging black hole thing with a right. So you would see a, a different well, wavelength, and it and it would instantly like if you could you know get a time machine, bring those inflationary gravitational waves back and hand them over to some cosmologists working on this, they would go, okay, that perfectly explains this theory and throws out all those other theories. And they would, yes, it would it be would a, constrained. It'd be a window into the inflation event itself, yeah. which was all the excitement of bicep. Remember that a right. few years ago, which was what a four Sigma detection, except whoops, they forgot. <laughs> they, they screwed up their dust model, yeah. which is a perfect example of, yeah, I believe you're four sigma if you did everything right. If you screwed something up, all your uncertainties uh, screw up too. Uh, that was the imprint of gravitational waves on the cosmic microwave background, shifting the light pattern in a very subtle way. All right, I had one question, then I'll get to George's question as well, but I, but I like this one here. So, um, Okay, so this comes from Crush Knot. Dr. Paul, any thoughts on quantum immortality, a.k.a. many worlds interpretation of Schrodinger's cat, where you, the observer, is the cat, and you can only observe worlds where you exist to observe? Yeah, you're willing to give it a shot. Uh, I'm not going to participate in that particular experiment. <laughs> right. So physics, physics is a series of bets. 
on how the universe works, that's a bet I'm not willing to take. So George Lancaster asks, can the underlying expansion of the universe cause matter in two relative frames to go faster than the speed of light and cause causality issues? Yes. Objects at the distant edges of the universe are receding away from us faster than the speed of light. And it means it doesn't cause a causality issue, but it does mean we will never, ever, ever, ever catch up with them, ever. Right. Which, so I dealt with this as a question in the question show this week that I just shot. And someone was saying, so even though we may live in an infinite universe, for all practical purposes, it's a finite universe. It's our bubble. And getting more finite every day. Yes. So even though the universe is expanding, our observable patch shrinks with time. Is the density of that observable patch going down as well as material is sort of falling over that cosmic horizon? Yes, exactly. The matter density of the universe continues to drop, but the dark energy density remains constant. That's its superpower. That's its special thing. The density of dark energy stays constant. That's what drives accelerated expansion. So as the universe expands, the matter density drops and the total amount of matter stays fixed and in a larger volume density drops, but dark energy, the density is constant. So as the universe expands, you get more and more dark energy. Right. And so eventually, well, I guess dark, I mean, eventually the universe will be almost all dark energy mm-hmm. except for except for whatever dark matter and matter hung out in one big blob yes in in what will become the merged remnant of the milky way andromeda triangulum and the entire local group will stay bound together with everything else carried away outside of our our event horizon, outside of our our future light cones will will fade from view. And then dark energy will be so strong at that point that if you you just jump away from that local group, if you take one little hop away, the accelerated expansion of the universe will just flick you right away. And that's assuming that dark energy is going to remain constant. If it it increases, then it's a whole other problem a whole other problem. It might decrease, it might increase, it might shift around, it might transform itself into new matter fields like inflation did. Who knows? Who, who can say? It's not sterile neutrinos, though. All right. That's the end. Here's a good one. Uh, Lost and Boundless asks, and use the question mark. Thank you. Uh, when two black holes begin to collide at a fundamental level, what is happening as one begins to sp- spaghettify? Are they even spaghettifying? They do distort. The event horizons of the black holes do distort. So as they get close, uh, instead of being perfect spheres, they they extend and they kiss at a little point. And then it looks like a dumbbell shape. And then the dumbbell gets bigger. And then they're a, a lumpy, lopsided black hole rapidly rotating. And then it settles down into a sphere and it vibrates. It releases some extra amount of energy and, and eventually settles down to a single sphere. But what's going on inside those event horizons, we can never know. It's uh, what's going on. Well, we can know because we have mathematics and we have general relativity and we have uh, quantum field theory. So we can make some pretty solid 
we can make some pretty solid statements about what happens inside of the event horizon. Mm-hmm. We can't visit it and right. tell everyone else. <laughs> How romantic. Adorable, invisible destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Liberty 309. I see a question. Oh, you, oh, want, you want to take on? I saw there was a question. Uh, they asked a couple times. Uh, by Katsor, can you explain what type of data is being collected by the Event Horizon Telescope uh, effort to get a photo of Sagittarius A star? So Event Horizon Telescope is a radio telescope and specifically a radio interferometer, which means it's multiple radio antennas scattered all around the world, all trained on the same target, collecting the exact same data at the exact same time. And then we all collect it together into one giant radio picture. So it will be a picture, an image in the radio spectrum of the black hole itself and its accretion disk, assuming they don't screw it up. Mm-hmm. What I've heard is the that we're going to see it in spring of 2019. Spring of 19. So they've already pushed it back because I, yeah. I was here in fall of, yeah. of this year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is super tricky data analysis and radio astronomy is kind of a black magic kind of thing in astronomy where you have to do special spells and incantations and certain numbers of sacrifices of graduate students before you get out a a reasonable result. I mean, isn't the trick with, with this is that with radio waves it's it's just barely feasible to take all of these readings with all these different telescopes and merge them after the fact and turn it into one big picture you can't do that with any other wavelength beyond radio waves so you can do you can do it with other wavelengths but it's exceedingly after the fact after the fact yes okay okay uh there are extra terms Hmm in the mathematics that make it very very difficult so difficult that it's rarely done right but it can be done yeah and so it's not like i mean wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just take all the world's observatories as well as the hubble space telescope all point at some object and you know and gather a bunch of light and then take all that and turn it into a telescope the size of the earth mm-hmm. you all all you get right now is the total, I guess, surface area of all those telescopes, which is not a telescope the size right. of the Earth. But right. with the Event Horizon Telescope, that's what they're doing. And this is the magic of radio interferometry. <laughs> right. Well, all interferometry, but radio being the one, again, that is feasible to do after the fact. It's the, it's the easiest to do. Yeah, so you can make, uh, this is what powers almost all major new radio arrays. And the best part is the arrays themselves are dumb. They're like coat hangers, right? Or they're just like super chicken wire dishes. <laughs> it, it's just like, you just need to detect radio waves right. and you just need a hunk of metal to do it. All the hard work gets done on a computer later on. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Evie's gotten flower 20. I've heard 2019. Uh, but I promise you, every time I talk to any one of these people, I just nag them. How about now? Can I see it now? Can we get the picture now? How about now? How about now? But 
you've sort of tried to prepare. We've tried to prepare people emotionally for what they're about to see when they do. It's going to be a fuzzy blob, a fuzzy blob. But hey, it's the best picture of a black hole we've ever had. Yeah. So, okay. So a bunch of people are asking about this. How can things expand, move away faster than the speed of light? Okay. Do you want to do you want to take a take a crack at that? Because why not? Yeah. Now I got slapped on the wrist by Sean Carroll when we first met. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, you helped me through a very dark time when I was saying this, and Sean Carroll uh, came down on me. So. Uh, so I remember you were right. You were fine. Sean Carroll was also right and also fine there wasn't necessarily a reason to come down hard on you because there, because like in most things in physics, there's multiple ways to look at a single problem. You can look at it with different lenses, different sides of the equations, different combinations of jargon. What matters is the mathematics, right? That's what we really care about. But we're we're on an abstract level where we're using words in in extra hand gestures to explain what's going on with the mathematics. And whenever you do that, like any translation, uh, you know, some translations might fit the mood better than others. And it's a total, it's a game. And so things at the far edge of the universe. One way to say it is that, yeah, they're receding faster than the speed of light. Special relativity is only a law that applies to your local region of space. It can't tell you about things that are going really, things that are really, really far away. They can have whatever speed they want. It doesn't matter. And that's totally fine and legit. And I think that was uh, the approach you took. Sean Carroll's approach was that for objects far away, there is no such thing as velocity. Velocity, that word velocity, can only be applied to things that are really close. So it, to me, it's six of one, half dozen of the other, because mm -hmm. special relativity talks about velocities in your local region of space. Away from that bubble, either special relativity doesn't care because it's outside of its domain, or the word velocity is undefined, which means special relativity doesn't care because it only cares about velocities. So there you go. In the common astronomy parlance, the day-to-day -day operations, they'll refer to re recession velocities. They'll tag a galaxy and they'll put a speed on it in kilometers per second. And, and that's just the way it's been done for a hundred years whether that has any physical meaning or not doesn't really matter just whatever uh, uncle bill drew and uh, you sound exactly like me uh he's saying in the comments can i see it now can i see the picture now what about now can i see it now that's that's pretty much that's anyone in that community when i talk to them i say and by the way can i see a sneak preview of the picture from the event horizon telescope nobody has been willing to show it to me Yeah, just take the a picture of this live stream. Put a big put take some petroleum jelly and smear it on your screen. And in that's about what you're That's gonna about do. what you're going to see. Yeah. <laughs> Pixar didn't happen. All right. Uh go ahead, hit us with some more questions. 
and use the little question mark if you want to get our attention. But, was there a special question mark emoji thing? But, but so, you know, just to kind of hash this out one more time, because the, you know, the right now where there are these galaxies that are moving theoretically faster than the speed of light or, you know, not. Observationally. Observationally moving faster than the speed of light. What about that time during the period of inflation where the universe doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled in size a bunch of times in a fraction of a second? Great times. Great, good times. Wow. It had grown quickly. Mm -hmm. Some might say that it had moved faster than the speed of light observationally. From yeah. Parts were moving away from each other at very rapid Super luminally. Super, oh, okay, there you go. Super luminally. Yeah. Uh, parts of the universe. If you live in an expanding universe, no matter the rate of expansion, the, there will be parts of it that are accelerated, that are moving away from you faster than the speed of light. If the universe isn't expanding very quickly, super slow-mo snail space, then you have to go out really, 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 really far till you reach right. that point that's going fast. If it's going, if the expansion is really fast, like during the inflationary epoch, then it's like your next, door, your next door neighbor is recedes away from you faster than the speed of light. Right now we're kind of in between. And it's going to get right worse in the future as dark energy continues yes. to take over. Yes. Which is this, uh, you know, really weird thought to think about the far, far future where you, what would have been an observable universe, our observable universe, there will be these regions that are vastly bigger that have nothing in them, just just dark energy accelerating the expansion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Ooh, all right. Uh, so uh, Neil, you, I'm sure you've had this one a million times. So Paul, what do you think of Verlin's gravity ideas? Meh, okay. <laughs> like, interesting line of thought. Yep. Intriguing based on these these very, very thin threads uh, that we've been picking up over the past few decades about the nature of black holes and the nature of the connection between gravity and thermodynamics. Like, I can see that thread. It's it's so thin. It's, it, is, it is like no thicker than a hair on my head, mm -hmm. which is very thin. And, but there is a thread there. That said, he's been working on it for like, what, two decades? And, you know, at some point we, we, gotta, we gotta say like, okay, maybe that's the wrong line of thinking. Right. Crushnut says, Dr. Paul, your video about cosmic rays and how we have no idea where high energy ones come from blew my mind. Who's looking for the source and what is your thoughts on where they came come from? Ooh, who's looking for the, the source? So we have a lot of high energy cosmic ray detectors. Uh, even the ice cube that announced this uh, potential neutrino result, they're all cosmic ray detector. They're searching for high energy cosmic rays. There's instruments called Hawk in Mexico and Veritas in, uh, let's put it in Southern California, if I remember right. There's Pierre Auger Observatory in 
Chile, who knows, like I'm just picking random countries out of a hat. And uh, so, th so there's worldwide efforts to look for high, 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 ultra high energy cosmic rays. There's the Fermi Large Area Telescope, the Gamma Ray Observatory. Um, there's many collaborations, dozens, I'd say, all around the world from small to big, looking for cosmic rays of all kinds, especially the high energy ones. Where they're coming from, I have no idea. So, I mean, just to give people a sense of what these cosmic rays are, I mean, these are these high energy particles that are arriving with levels of energy that we couldn't possibly generate in the Large Hadron Collider, right? Like they are off the charts. Powerful. They're beastly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Terra electron volts. Something crazy yeah. like that. I don't. I know. I just did the podcast on. But <laughs> yeah. As, as soon well, as I recorded. Forgot all the details. Yeah, that's the easiest way to to completely forget any information on a subject is to do a, an episode it's on to it. To teach it. Yeah, but um, what are some possible yeah. ones? Like it's you know it's got to be like the biggest machines in the universe, right? We're, we're talking yeah, so, supermassive so black, black holes, colliding yeah. objects. So even colliding objects don't seem to be powerful enough because the energetics don't line up in the right way to, to accelerate these kinds of particles. Uh, you need raw energy, plus you need the physical conditions that can spin up a particle like this to such a crazy mm -hmm. uh, velocity and send it blasting off. Active galactic nuclei, quasars, seem to be the most likely candidates because they're enormous wells of energy. Mm -hmm. but there's a cosmic distance limit to these high energy cosmic rays. If they travel, because they're traveling so fast, the cosmic microwave background with this bath of low energy photons that we all sit in every day and soak in, when you go that fast, it gets blue shifted up to gamma rays. And they literally start like, smacking into you as you're trying to rush that fast and they slow you down. And so there's a distance limit to how far these ultra high energy cosmic rays can go. And it's something like 5 billion light years, something like that, if I remember right, plus or minus. And there's no supermassive black holes, active quasars in that limit, except for one. And the cosmic rays aren't coming from that. They're coming from all over the sky. So that's the big mystery of the most obvious culprit has an alibi. <laughs> Which is relatively nearby active quasars. They don't seem to be the cause. Right. Or because there are no active uh, quasars nearby. Right. And like... And and there are pretty much no more powerful machines in the in the universe than those. I mean, maybe uh, gamma maybe ray bursts. Gamma ray burst. Yeah, exactly. Maybe gamma ray bursts, but these don't seem to be timed with gamma ray burst events or sourced from the same part of the sky. Yeah. Some line of thinking is maybe it has something to do with transients. Maybe there are some quiet black holes nearby, supermassive ones in nearby galaxies that just take a, mm. a, a gulp and burp for a couple weeks or a month and then go away. And then they're the source of these energies. Uh, but because we don't have 
dedicated, continuous observing to, to spot these. We just miss them. That the quiet black holes aren't really that quiet after all. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Philip James asks, so are there elements that we'll never be able to see inside of a black hole or it's just a particle soup? Back to that old question. What's, what's inside uh, the event horizon? What's inside the event horizon is the singularity. All matter inside the event horizon. As soon as you cross that event horizon, you are headed directly for the singularity. You cannot escape it. The singularity is... How should I say this? It's tempting to think of the black hole like a cell with a nucleus and little ribosomes, you know, and proteins floating around. And then like the, the membrane surrounding it of the event horizon. A black hole, physics is way simpler than biology. A black hole is simpler than a cell. A black hole, by definition, is a singularity and event horizon. Right. That's it. It's just two parts. It's just two parts. It's made of black hole. Exactly. It, it's its own thing. Right. And this is, I mean, we've chatted a bit about this in the past, this idea that if you take a regular matter object and you crash it into an antimatter object, you know, you take, you take a regular matter black hole and you crash it into an antimatter black hole, you're just going to get a black hole with double the mass. You're not going to get yeah. a, and that's because actually it's a trick question. There's no such thing as an antimatter black hole. You could have, a, you could take a black hole's worth of energy, collapse it into a black hole, and it'll turn into a black hole. Take a black yep. hole's worth of matter, black hole's worth of antimatter, crash them together, you just get black hole. It's all just made of black hole. Yeah, and just just two parts: the singularity and the event horizon. But really, what, just the singularity. Right. The event horizon is a consequence of the singularity. But we see objects here in space, things like a white dwarf, which is you know, you've reached this point where the, mm -hmm. you know, the particles are as munched together as they can. And then you can have one stage smaller with a neutron star where they get even smaller. Maybe there's an, you know, there's a quark star and maybe there's a prion star. Maybe there's a couple more layers and then black hole. And then at that point, you know, it's like, is there some other fundamental shape that we're not aware of inside that singularity or... Yeah, I mean, I should say, I, uh, yeah, I, I need to preface all this with this is the picture in general relativity, yeah, which is how we predicted that black holes exist. We know for sure that picture is incomplete because the uh, laws of physics break. Yeah, be, there is, there is, even though a black hole is entirely 100% singularity, singularities don't exist. Yeah, it's something else, but we don't know what that something else is. Uh, Krishnan is asking whether uh, black holes have hair or not. Probably not, but maybe yes. What Active is... research question. Yeah. What does that even mean? Black holes are, in the simple picture of general relativity, insanely simple. Like I said, you can describe it with three numbers. Just mass, spin, and charge. You have two black holes with the exact same mass, spin, and charge. You can swap them around. You'll play that cup game or whatever. You can tell them apart. That's what's said to be hairless black holes. And 
I'm kind of annoyed. I think it was John Wheeler that coined this phrase because now everyone who imagines like our black holes hairy, even on like big budget TV shows, they'll show black holes with, with like hairs poking out, like tendrils. Uh, so it's just it? like that. Yes, exactly. What am I trying to think of? What's that thing like on a cell, like a oh. cilia? Okay. Like, and I'm just uh, imagining some eldritch dark god. Oh yeah, from, reaching out. Yeah, from reaching the... out. Yeah, yeah, Cthulhu tag, and you know. Wow. Yeah. Now you've done it. <laughs> That's uh, it. I just summoned it. It just happened. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a hairy black hole is a black hole that has more information accessible to us about its properties. A viewer wanted me to do an episode on the no boundary theorem from Hawkins. Hawkins. Okay. Is that just a finite universe that wraps on itself? What is the no boundary theorem? Let's see what Wikipedia has to say. Because I read it and I was like, oh, that's the, from what I understand, it's like a, it's a finite universe as opposed to an infinite universe. It's a little more complicated than that. I'm refreshing my memory. It's like seven. Maybe I'll have to have an interview with you again. We'll do another collaboration yeah. and we'll talk about the no boundary theorem. Yeah, let's talk about that because um, it's in one sense, you can think of it yeah, like even in an infinite universe, it can be uh, boundless yet finite. Um, but as more to do with the early state of the universe uh, rather than its present day's size and extent. Mike McHugh, are there drugs I can take to make me smarter? I, I yes, like the drug like, of knowledge, of knowledge of practice, mm, of learning, I, well, books. I, well, no, but I mean, we get. I get that question a lot where people say like, oh, I'm not good at math, so I can't become an astronomer. Or I can't become a physicist. Like, Paul, are you good at math? Probably not. Like, did you, like, were you always like a, you know, you looked at math problems and they just jumped into your brain and you totally understood them? No, I actually uh, struggle with um, basic arithmetic. Mm -hmm. No, I, math was always one of my hardest subjects. And in my career in physics, especially undergrad and grad school, the pure theory, the pure math classes were always the hardest ones, the analytical analysis and mathematical methods classes. That's where I had the, the most challenge. Thankfully, I am somewhat gifted and talented with computer programming, and that's how I got into computational science and computational physics and computational astrophysics of I am pretty good with mathematics on a computer and making computers do my bidding. And there's a lot of, of variability of skill sets in the physics and astronomy mm -hmm. and science community where, yes, mathematics is a part of it, but it doesn't have to be the whole story. There's a lot of physicists that are great you know, builders, and they're the ones building and designing and testing radio instruments or the ice cube experiment or the Large Hadron Collider. 
uh, or operating it or, or designing it or, or making sure it's as, eff as efficient as possible. There are ones who are really good at data analysis or, or data collection. And there are ones that are good at, you know, pencil and paper math. Really, it's more about thinking rigorously and logically. And that is something that people have varying levels of talent, but it's not an easy thing for anyone. It's a skill. Yeah. That you... And I guess that's the point, right? Is that none of this stuff is going to jump into your brain immediately and make a ton of sense. It is this step by step practice that you do. And there are plenty of people who never saw themselves as math people or as physics people, but are fascinated by the questions. And so they just toughed through the the work to to build up the the practice and it, you know you spend day after day after day doing equation after equation i mean y you will build the skills and you will be able to do the math that is required for you to be able to do your job you know if you need to calculate yep. a fast fourier transform or linear algebra or um fourier transform of uh, linear algebra or the various requirements of calculus like for your for you you do kind of the same math again and again and again right i mean yeah and as you progress in your career you specialize so you become familiar with a certain set of computational toolkits a certain mathematical set of toolkits that appear uh, quite often in your area of research you're you become familiar with the background papers and in the logic and the thinking and the and the essential physics and math behind that and you just you specialize and you grow and you practice and you reach the point of you reach your breaking point and then that's where you apply yourself yeah and i i really am a believer in that very you know there are people who who enjoy it or have an aptitude for it and that sort of keeps them going through the hard times and the dark times but for which most there are a lot people of. which there are a lot of in, in all fields but for most people if you are fascinated by space and astronomy or you're fascinated by computers or you're fascinated by physics you can absolutely build up the math skills or the physics skills to be able to to do the work you just have to apply yourself and be willing to uh you wear this shirt periodically you just have to be willing to do put in the practice it's just time you just throw time at the problem and you will build the skills so so whenever anyone tells me that they're not smart enough for math or whatever i'm like oh it's not what it's about uh we've got like two minutes left so we need to oh, shamelessly no. self-promote a couple of things before we Why wrap not? things up yeah first where can people find her? if they're enjoying this conversation this is what you get over at Paul's YouTube channel. Yeah, except I'm by myself <laughs> by most yourself. of the time. Yeah. And I talk to myself, but I'm pretty entertaining. Yeah, uh, so on my channel, I have three sets of videos. I have Ask a Spaceman, which comes out every week, which is five to 15 minute long discussions on a particular topic in, in astronomy and, and physics and science and all that. I think coming up next week, I'm talking about how rockets work from the perspective of a physicist, which is going to be very, very simple. And uh, I have COSI Science Now. These are one minute long videos about the latest science news, just something cool, a fresh perspective on it. And then I also host Space Radio. This is my weekly radio show on WCBE Columbus. We live stream the recording of that show where you can ask questions just like you've done now, except 
the answers become recorded and broadcast Whoa. throughout the country. Old timey radio. Uh, and then let's also shamelessly self-promote something that we're going to be doing together, which is that we're going to Costa Rica. That's right. This September, we're going on a cruise together. So sorry, all you suckers who couldn't get on the boat ride, but you have another chance to party down with the two best bald science explainers in the world. In this live stream anyway. During this live stream located in Ohio and Vancouver. I think that's between safe. the ages I, approximately 35 to 55 i think that is safe to sort of yeah define it that way yeah so what's the what are the dates um march 20 it's march i'm pulling gonna, it up because yeah, I, I don't remember either and i've got we did a promo that i've got to, i'm gonna it's run a trip. it's a trip so if you're interested if you like to go on trips yeah yeah and you like stargazing and you like cool places and you want science people to hang out with you to, to celebrate with you and to teach and learn you some stuff. March 2nd through the 10th, 2019, it's yeah. Costa Rica. Um, it's an all-inclusive trip, including flights down, trips to Guanacaste. Uh, so during the day, we're doing like Monte Verde Cloud Forest. We're doing uh, zip line tours. We're visiting a volcano. And then every night, stargazing. Yeah. And with so some we, cool telescopes. Yeah, we've partnered up with Oceanside Photo and Telescope, uh, mm-hmm. and they're going to let us bring a bunch of really cool telescopes with us. So we're going to be setting that up every night. We're going to be teaching you the night sky. We're going to be observing some objects that you normally can't see from the northern, more northern regions like where we are, yep. like things like the Omega Cluster. Even the Magellanic Clouds, I think, are kind of visible yes. from that perspective. So I'm really looking forward to that. And, and the skies are going to be dark. So if 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 Costa Rica is a place you kind of want to go, you should totally look into it. Go to Astro Tours. And if you've never thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. AstroTours.co slash Costa Rica. If yeah. you've never thought of it, go to the page. Yeah. AstroTours.co slash Costa Rica. Get your name. It's just 500 bucks a person to deposit. So if you're kind of waffling, if you're yeah. kind of on the fence, go down, register, Put in the deposit, get your name on the list. You have you have time to get your money back if you decide not to go on the trip. Uh, but get your name in to, to reserve your spot. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Paul, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to answer everyone's questions. A big thank you to all the people who watched us today and to all the people who are moderating. A uh, big thank you to uh, Nancy Graziano, who configured Nightbot to uh, to say all these things that it's doing right now. So there's there's tons of information in there. Uh, no plans for who the guest is going to be next week. Uh, give me some recommendations if there's someone you want to see me talk to next Paul week. Paul Sutter. Paul Sutter. Again? Yeah, why not? Sure. Hey, I'm on Sky's channel. I know. I have once a week. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, any uh, you're welcome back anytime, man. Uh, but except for except for most times, any time. We will, we will drop everything and do a live stream at your any whim, Paul. Wow. Yeah. Now that's power. That's power. Exactly. I'll see you in eight hours. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you uh, next week. Take it easy. Oh, Thank and you, the, great, or great on question. Wednesday weekly for the weekly space hangout. If you want to yeah, see there's the that too. continue, I'm sure at that point you'll be much more knowledgeable about stale neutrinos. <sighs> All right. If you later. insist. <laughs>